Crossway Church Sermon Audio. The first time I brought one of my daughters in the ocean, every time I bring one of my daughters in the ocean for the first time when they're toddler or whatever, I carry them in. They, they always cling to me. There's something about the waves and the depth that's frightening to them, and they just cling. And even though uh, there's no way I'm going to let them go, they, they're, they're, like, they're, they're like, a, like a dryer sheet or, or something stronger than that, much stronger, but just clinging, it, it, like there's adhesive, like you can't get them off. And I remember the youngest one here in the last few years, she stands out the most because there was something that perplexed her so much, it just, it really took her time to get used to the waves, and she would just cling to me. And I, I remember not only clinging to me, but as, as I, every step I took out, it seemed like she climbed up higher on my body. And, 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 as, and I just, you know, the only thought I have at these moments anymore is I'm too old for this. I can't do this anymore. Well, today we're coming to the end of our series in Joshua, and I hope through it, that we have been established in the reality that our God fights for us. He fights for His people, and He fulfills all of His promises to us. In the last two chapters, we're going to have Joshua's final words, his final words in Scripture, his final words to the people of Israel. Now, Moses, David, and others have had their final words recorded in the Old Covenant as well. And there are some striking similarities if you're to study those farewell speeches. In this farewell speech, you're going to see some striking similarities that these faithful servants of the Lord want to get across to God's people before the end. You're going to see here that Joshua is going to expend his last breaths doing everything he can to ensure the covenant faithfulness of God's people. And you're going to see as well that he knows that this is only possible by God's grace. And he's not cynical, but he's filled with faith that God can keep them. And so he calls them to faith in Yahweh, in God, but he uses a particular metaphor to help them understand. He's going to tell them to cling to cling to Yahweh, to cling to God. And I think we should simply take our cue from that today. If I get that first slide, please. Listen to Joshua's words and learn to cling to the God who loves you. Listen to His words and learn to cling. We're going to use that metaphor, the clinging metaphor. We're going to be the child wading into the ocean with their father and clinging hard. But as we go, we need to realize we're not just clinging because of fear, but because of love. We're going to cling to the God who loves us. So let's examine what it looks like to cling to the God who loves us. I want to give you three points to show what it looks like to cling to the God who loves us. First, we're going to cling by being different. We're going to cling by being different. Now, we're not looking at difference for difference's sake, and and we see that in our culture all the time where people try to be nonconformist. They want to be different, and so they change their style, their hairstyle, they do something to their hair, or they do something to their clothing, or they dress in a way that stands out, or they put as much metal as they possibly can into their faces, or, or something like that. They want to look different. Now, I think the reason why people often will do that is because they're casting about looking for an identity. 
They want an identity. People want to belong. They want to be part of community. They want to be accepted. An identity can provide this. It says, I belong with this group. And while they may be different from others, different from maybe broader society, they conform to the identity of that group. They find their identity there, their essence, their belonging there. And so the question then becomes, which identity? It's not that we're going to have an identity. We're going to have an identity. But the question becomes, which identity should we grasp? And then, because of that identity, what are we called to be different from? And as Christians, we know we're called to be different from the rest of the world, not just so that we can find an identity, but because we already have an identity in Christ. We, we, we belong to someone already, and we belong to a community already. In other words, if we belong to Christ, then we are going to be different from the world. We're going to be identified, marked, set apart, different from this world, and it's going to show. And so we're going to cling by being different, and that different has a purpose to it. That difference has a purpose to it. So now I want to read for you a longer text, as we've been doing here, because I think there's great benefit in reading God's Word. And so Joshua chapter 23, we're going to read the whole chapter now. That's uh, 16 verses, but it's interesting. So please follow along in your scriptures. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts a flight to a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now, am I about, now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, 
so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. That's a long text, but you, you see the story there. Now, let's make the connection between loving God and clinging to him. Let's make it explicit, this, this idea of clinging, that metaphor. So take a look, and this is part of the portion we just read, but, but see it there. Be very careful, right in the middle of the text, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. And so what it's saying there is if you love him, The way you're going to express this is you'll cling to him. You're going to cling to him. And so you see, and I I missed the uh, underline at the top of that portion, but basically verse 8, you shall cling to the Lord your God. And then below where it says to love the Lord your God, you see it again there. If you turn back and you cling instead to the remnant, in other words, the other people, the pagans. And so love is expressed in this clinging to God. And I I think that's such a helpful idea. And so we can right off the bat ask ourselves today, are we clinging to God? What are we clinging to? What do we hold most tightly to in life? Is it identity? Is it money? Is it career, occupation? Is it family? Is it fun and convenience? Is it stimulation? Is it pleasure? Is it entertainment? Is it hopes? It needs to be the Lord Himself. You know, is it relationship? It needs to be the Lord Himself. We can, we can just kick it right off and ask ourselves that. What am I clinging to today? Well, how are they going to cling to Him? Well, we've already said that, by being different. They're supposed to be different than the world. Well, how are they supposed to be different from the world? Well, they're immersed. They'd come into a land, and and they'd come to conquer this land where idols were everywhere. Everyone was worshiping a multitude of other gods and not the true God, although they may have thrown the true God in there a little bit too. But to throw the true God in there with other gods means to not worship the true God. It's still idolatry. Because you can't worship God like that. And so there's idolatry all over the place. People have little shrines in their homes, in their towns. There are temples, and they have a multitude of gods. And there are many practices going along with this. Certainly lots of immorality, lots of drunkenness, lots of, of, of uh, unclean sacrifices, and, and even the sacrifice of babies and other humans to pacify the gods. This is touching all of their life. The idolatry of the land is touching all of their lives. They, they pray to these gods. They look to these gods. If something goes bad, they say the gods must be angry. If something goes good, they say the gods must be happy with us. They engage in all kinds of ideas, and, the, and their values are based on what they believe will please these gods. They even They have a network based on these gods. Which god do you serve? Do you honor this god? Okay, then you're part of the guild of craftsmen. And we can buy and sell together. And we can make money. It touches all of life. 
And so when Joshua gives this commandment to the Israelites and calls them to this difference, the way they're supposed to be different from the world, he, he gives them some very specific things there in verse 7. He says, you, you're not to mix with these nations remaining among you. You're, you're, and he says this, think about this, think about this command. He says, you're not even to make mention of the names of these gods. Now that seems pretty rigorous, doesn't it? He says you're not to swear by them or serve them, and you're not to bow down to them. In other words, they're to, they're to identify the values of the world, the things that they see and connect with, the reason that they do things, even their motivation behind those things. And they're to say no to those values, no to those things, no to the gods that embody those values. They're to reject all of it and to do so in the strongest way possible. I thought this aspect of what was in the text might help us make the connection more clearly. Think about this really specific, practical aspect of the command to be different from the world that they were a part of. Think about this. Are you ready? There was to be no intermarriage. There was to be no intermarriage. Why was there to be no intermarrying? Because to intermarry, a a, a servant of Yahweh who married a servant of the pagan gods, who married an idolater, the reason they weren't to do that is because it would become a snare to the servant of Yahweh. It would contaminate the servant of Yahweh. It would be a temptation to the servant of Yahweh. When you look at the language here, you realize a part of what what Joshua is saying, that God is saying through Joshua, is, is if you don't cling to me, you're going to cling to them. And when you take that idea of no intermarriage, and you run that through the values of the day, just run it through the values of the day. What do you think you might come out with on the other side? Do you think it would come through as clearly, as, as crystal clear, as, as unambiguously and certain, as rigorously, as no intermarriage? Or do you think it might look a little different? What if you took it and you, you threw it into the, the machine the, of, of evangelicalism? How do you think it would come out on the other side? It might look something like, well, you know, if you intermarry, or it's, maybe it's not the best practices, but, or it might be, it wouldn't be loving to just reject that person on the basis, they might be coming to Christ, right? And so you begin to lose the clarity of the command. The problem with that is it puts us in a position to get snared. The way this works is when you don't cling to God, when you don't cling to truth that He gives us in His Word, here's what happens. First, confusion comes. And with it, uncertainty. Then, indifference. And finally, the conviction in the opposite direction. 
look at all the benefits of marrying outside of Israel. The day would come when Israelites, and actually, uh, I don't think they ever stamped it out. I think the evidence is that they never stamped out the idolatry among their own people and the intermarrying that led to more idolatry. But the day would come in Israel, it wouldn't be that many generations away from Joshua where they were intermarrying a lot. These are rational people. They had reasons for it. They had justifications for it. They came to a place where there were benefits. that they, No one should call it wrong. It'd be wrong to call it wrong. It'd be hateful to call it wrong. It'd be intolerant to call it wrong. That's the way it came to be thought of. And God says, that's how you get snared. That's how you get trapped. You see, we know that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And we have to interpret this for this gospel age. So yeah, we're not going around tearing, or tearing down pagan altars at this time. Israel had a very specific role in redemption history. But I think the most important place to find this concern of being different from the world is in the values that we hold versus the values of this age. The thinking of this world versus the thinking of a Christian. They are different things. There ought to be a massive difference between how we think about what's right and wrong, what glorifies God, and what they believe is right and wrong. And that goes for every area. Take an area of controversy today. Take an area of moral certitude today in the, in the culture, in the world. And even if there are things that look similar to the way a Christian ought to look at it, there's going to be a big difference underneath it all. That goes for human sexuality or marriage or racial concerns, biomedical concerns, judicial concerns, justice. We look at the world very differently. What is tolerance? What is love? And how to glorify God. Our values should be so different from the world that when they look at us, they don't understand where we're coming from. There should be a stark difference in the way we look at this world and the way they look at the world. And our brains are trained by the atmosphere that's happening around us daily. Daily we breathe the values of this world. They're pushed on us constantly. It's, just, it's like wherever the darkness can, evil doesn't stand still. The devil is not passive. He is active. And if he sees a bright and shining light, he wants to snuff it out. And the way you do that with the Israelites is you get them to intermarry because that will bring in idolatry and cause rebellion against God. And the way he does it with us is to get us to agree with the world on the values of the world so that we bring them into the church and try to judge the church by the values of the world and judge life by the values of the world. And it cannot be. It cannot be. So unless, unless we are trained by the Word of God, that is going to happen 
to us. So look at Joshua 23, again in the middle of this text. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. And this is why it's so critical to be in God's Word. Because if you're not, you're going to buy the values of the age, the thinking of this world, the confusion and the indifference, and ultimately the wrong conviction and wrong emphasis. And the devil loves that. So what is God going to do to them if they cling, if they don't cling to God, but they cling instead to the Canaanites? Well, he says he's no longer going to drive the Canaanites out. Think about this. Listen to this. He says he's no longer going to drive the Canaanites out, but instead the Canaanites, and I'm speaking of, when I say Canaanites, I use it as a blanket statement for all the different people groups living in Canaan. The Canaanites, he says, are going to become, what does he say, a snare and a trap. In other words, you're going to get what you want, and then you're going to end up being forced to cling to the world rather than to God. That's the way sin works. That's the way rebellion works. It has an object. It has a desire. And the last thing you and I want, dear brothers and sisters, is to get the desire of our rebellion because it means that God is already in discipline mode, in consequence mode. And that's the way sin is. It entraps you. It keeps you there. And so... If the Israelites didn't cling to God, they would be made to cling to their idols. They'd be ensnared again. And the same is true for us. If we persist in rebellion, we will end up ensnared and clinging to the wrong thing. So first, we need to, we need to cling by being different from this world, having a different set of values. The world should look at us at least at points like we are insane because we're different for the sake of Christ. But the second way that we can cling is by relying on God, by relying on God alone, by learning to rely on Him more and more. Now, this portion that we're going to see, this next portion, not a long portion, it's similar to other ancient Near Eastern vassal treaties, vassal treaties. And, and so what's happening in a vassal treaty is the idea of a great king, like the king of Babylon or the king of Assyria, would come to a smaller kingdom. And he'd say, okay, instead of us destroying all of you, let's do this. Why don't we enter a treaty together? And, and the, the, the king of the smaller land was like, yeah, yeah, okay, let's do that. And so that smaller king became his vassal. And, and, and this was kind of magnanimous of the great king because he would he would make a covenant and say, okay, listen, if you abide by these things, then I'll take care of you. I'll even protect you. And, and I'll let you live in peace and even govern yourselves to a certain degree. And he would make certain covenants with them. And the thing that's happened with Israel is that from Abram on, they entered a vassal treaty in a sense, a covenant with the true great king, the only great king. And you may know one of the big differences in this treaty versus other vassal treaties is that God himself says, if I break these covenants that I'm making with you, the great king says, he takes the reverse position. He says, if I break these covenants with you, I'll bear the penalty. In other words, God's saying, I promise to fulfill 
everything that I, I tell you I'll do, I will fulfill it. That's how strong his covenant to his people is. He's a loving and great God. But it also means that when it comes to this portion, this, this portion we're going to look at here, it's, it's actually very similar. The, the, it wouldn't have been odd or, or new or innovative to the Israelites. It would have made sense. The only difference is that they're making it with the true great king of all, God himself. It is the vassal treaty to end all vassal treaties. So I'm going to read for you verses 1 to 13 of Joshua 24. Joshua 24, verses 1 to 13. And notice in this passage, look out for how active God is in choosing them. How active He is in saving them. Verses 1 to 13. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt and with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand, and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. You dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Look at what the great king has done here for Israel. Starts out with Terah, with Abraham. Abraham is a pagan who serves other gods. He doesn't know God. He doesn't worship God. He doesn't worship God properly. And God simply speaks to him. God chooses him and speaks to him. God sets his love on him. God says, I'm going to call you to be my child. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Abram. And then there's this salvation. When, when they end up in Egypt, God brings them out from under their enslavers, where they're entrapped, where, where, where they can't help but cling to their masters. God says, no, you're no longer going to cling to them. You're going to cling to me. And he sets them free by sending plagues. 
And when he brings them out and he brings them to Sinai and brings them to the wilderness, ultimately he brings them to the land of promise and he fulfills his promise to give him rest. All of that was not because they had done anything. He chose them. He saved them. He fulfilled his promises to them all because of his love and faithfulness. It is all of grace. 100%. God talks about sending the hornet before them. Interesting thought. Have you ever been stung by a hornet? Have you ever approached a, 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 a beehive or, or a wasp's nest and where they poured out on you and you had to run away? Or, or you just, you got stung and you, all of a sudden, when, you know, generally when people get stung, they don't, they lose their cool. You know, you might think, oh, I'm a cool and collected person. You get stung by a bee, it changes. You, you know, you, you run, you flop around, you, you know, you, you, look, you look a little foolish in that moment. And that's the idea of the hornet here. God sends this horn, and not, not just a honeybee, he sends something with a powerful stinger. And it goes ahead of them, and, and there's the idea here that it's referencing the plagues where, where it's stinging the Egyptians and saying, wake up, pay attention. You think you're cool, you're not. You're in trouble with the one true living God, and you better turn. And God was doing that again and again with the people of Canaan as he sends, he sends his power before them. So that when they get there, they're already unsettled and afraid, upset, and, and, and they're, they're petrified of what's going to happen next. So God goes ahead of them and he prepares the way. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, look, Israel, yes, I, I called you to fight. I, I called you to go. I called you to have faith. And you did that. You went. You fought. But you didn't win because of you. You won because of me. You won because I made you my own. And God's done the same thing for us, dear friend. We were pagans. We were idolaters. We were enemies of God, the Scripture says. But God chose us, pagans, enemies, idolaters, and He made us His own through the sacrifice of His Son. He saved us and brought us out of the land of slavery. And He brought us into the wilderness of this Christian life. And He promises to give us rest. And in the resurrection of Jesus, all the promises of God are already yes and amen and still have a greater fulfillment to come. Do you know in, in, in powerful ways the church already has a greater fulfillment than Israel had in the land of promise under Joshua? Because we have Christ, and all of that was looking forward to Him in a foreshadow of what He would bring. But even though we have a fuller understanding and appreciation and experience of the grace of God, there is an even greater fulfillment to come. God has done this for us. And so we're to notice what God, the great King, has done for us. We're to see the grace in it, how He chose us and set His love on us and saved us and made us a people and, and has given us rest and fulfilled His promises to us. And we know that because of this, we're to rely on Him, right? We know that. But if we know that, why is it so hard to live in that way, to think in that way every day? I mean, if I were to ask, I think just about any one of you, hey, should you rely on yourself or rely on the Lord? 
you would say, oh, I need to rely on the Lord. But it's this thing that needs to happen every day. And, and it so easily creeps into us where we rely on ourselves. Now, here's why. Here's why we do that, where we rely on ourselves instead of looking to Him, which is maybe initially harder, but ultimately far easier and blessed and far more effective. The reason that's hard for us to do, it's, it's because of sin, right? It's because we want in our sin, it's a pride, but that pride that says, I want my own independence. It's a pride that says, I can do it myself. It's a pride that says, I don't need your salvation, I've got my own. Now, I, I know we don't, we don't write that out, we don't, we don't say that or put in our journal and say, here's what, I, you know, here's what I'd like to do today, do it on my own. I, I know we don't say that, but our attitudes and our actions, our thoughts betray us. That's what pride is. Pride is ultimately a setting ourselves apart as independent No need to depend. No need for reliance. No need for clinging. You see, if I'm independent from God, then I don't own Him. I don't owe Him anything. I don't owe Him my gratitude. I don't owe Him my allegiance. I don't owe Him my obedience. It feels like it'd be less work. If, I, if I'm not dependent on God, if I can be independent from God, then I don't, then, then I'm not, I'm not as bad as the Bible says I am. I'm not as sinful as the Scriptures say. I don't need the blood of Jesus as much if I'm independent from God. That's why it's hard for us. That's why we're tempted to be independent, rely on ourselves rather than rely on Him, rather than cling to Him. By the way, I think this is one of the reasons why thank you notes are so good. Because a thank you note, whenever you write a thank you note, you're saying, you did something for me I, 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 I couldn't have or I wouldn't have done for myself. Thank you. It's good to express gratitude for that reason. But mostly here what we're saying is that because of all that God has done, we need to recognize our need for Him. None of it came about. We didn't win because of our own fighting, because of our own strength, because of our own wisdom, because of our own goodness, because of our own power. But only because of what He has done do we belong to Him and do we have hope in this life. Well, I want to show you one more thing from this portion and this is, uh, this, is a, this, this point in this portion of Scripture is the longest portion, and then we're just going to take a few minutes on the last tiny bit. But I want to read for you verses 14 through 28 so you get the whole story from God's Word. And I want to show you one more thing from this text before we move on to that last few verses. 
Now therefore, Joshua says, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us up and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. That one more thing to show you from this text. And the way this reads, it's fascinating, isn't it? Joshua says, okay, okay, you need to cling to God. Don't think you're independent. It's all of grace. Rely on Him alone. Fight against your desire to be independent from Him, to say you don't need Him by your independence. But instead, embrace your need to rely on Him and cast yourself on Him. And, and he says, okay, there it is. So, Let's lay it out. Let's reaffirm the covenant. You need to serve. Who are you going to choose? You should serve the Lord. And what do the people say? They say, we will serve the Lord. And then here's this fascinating moment. This fascinating moment. Joshua says, you can't serve the Lord. And they say, we really will serve the Lord. And he says, okay, then do so. Well, what's going on here? Well, there's probably a few things happening in that text. Probably it's a test of their strength of commitment. You know, there's a real, mo- there's a mo- real moment here. It's like a I'm standing with Jesus moment. I, I remember the story a, a man told me years ago, actually a pastor, who, who had a son who was rejecting Christ. This young man was, was rejecting Christ and, and expressing it in very clear ways. And, and, and the father who loved his son and, and was a heartbroken to hear these things realized that there was, this was a moment where he had to draw a line. And he, and he said, son, you may reject Christ, but I want you to know 
I'm going to serve him. And I stand over here with Jesus. And if you stand over there against Jesus, my heart is broken, but that is your decision. As for me, I'm standing with Christ. And I have to make that really clear right now. We have those moments in life, don't we? We have family and friends where, where the moment comes where we, there's nothing left to say. Because that moment is so clear that if we don't draw that line, take that stand, make that clear, we confuse the lines and we're saying, well, I haven't really chosen who I'm serving here. You can't really tell. I can't really tell. Others can't really tell. I tell these people I'm serving Christ. I tell these people I'm not really serving Christ. I do it with my actions. I do it with my life. I do it with my worldly values. And there comes a time where we're saying, no, I, I, can't, I can't go with you there. As for me, I'm serving Christ. I'm clinging to Him. That, that time comes for us as well. So there's a real moment like that happening here. It's so instructive. But it's also probably a clarification. It's probably a, a technique to say, okay, let me make sure I hear you clearly. Let's make sure the contract is written out. Let's make sure we agree on the verbiage here. Let's make sure there's, there's no misunderstanding so that later you can come back and say, oh, I didn't know you meant that. That's probably happening as well. But there's also here in Joshua's words a powerful Old Testament recognition that no sinner can perfectly keep the commands, the law of God. In other words, this is a moment. Joshua is saying, Joshua's saying, I've lived my whole life under these laws. And even if I've kept them externally, He's going to affirm what Jesus is going to say in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not able to keep them internally. I'm not able to keep the full intent of the law. Even though I might not murder, I burn with anger inside. Even though I might not commit adultery, I burn with covetousness inside. This is Joshua powerfully recognizing the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for the sins of people. That God has to do something even more gracious and greater than what he had done for Israel at this time. He's pointing to the gospel, to Jesus Christ to come. And Jesus Christ does come. And when he comes, he doesn't just command sinners to obey. He dies to pay for our disobedience. And that for all who trust him, we have our sins atoned for and paid for. That's what Jesus does for us. Finally, a a way that we can learn is to cling all the way to the end. Cling all the way to the end. God help us from letting go of the plow, from turning aside from the task, from giving up on the road, We're letting our our feet slip to the point where we fall. God help us. Look now at verses 29 to 33. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. 
And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnasarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died and They buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. You see here that three of Israel's great leaders pass away right at the end. These these faithful leaders, they're leaving this this legacy of of faithfulness to the Lord. They they die and they're buried at different places in Israel. And they're, they're meant to be a memorial, a reminder in essence of faithfulness to God. In fact, it tells us here that Joshua died at 110 years old. And there's a couple things going on here. One is that Moses died at 120 years old, right? So Joshua was almost as great, but not quite as great in redemptive history as Moses. And so he dies just a little before. But there's also another connection here which is fascinating, and that's that that Joseph... How old was Joseph when he died? Genesis 50 tells us Joseph was 110 years old when he died. And so, right here we're seeing this connection, this positive connection between these patriarchs of Israel, these faithful fathers that trusted God, who God gave the promises to and was passed along to the people. It is the faithfulness of God to give faithful leaders and to call the people to be faithful. You know, in this day and age, so often we hear of unfaithful leaders and the failure of leaders, the tragic moral failure of leaders, the scandal of leaders. And dear friends, hear me now. That is, that, that those stories may be all over the, the digital media of this age. They, 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 they are the first stories to go out, the headlines that make it. And the more salacious the details, the, the more clicks that story will get. But that is not the way it is among God's people. Many, many, many faithful leaders, pastors, people of God labor in silence and in quiet, under the radar, serving the Lord Christ. It doesn't have to be that way where it's just unfaithfulness and failure at every turn. And I I know that in this age it's easy to become cynical of leadership. We're all tempted to that. And cynical of one another. To the point where we look around and we say, is there anyone faithful to the Lord? Well, there's certainly no one who's perfect in the Lord, except Christ himself. But there are many who are faithful and rely on Christ to cover their sin, to help them grow, to be more like him. I want you to see the potential effect of faithful people Faithful people of God, faithful leaders among God's people. Look at the effect here on the people of God. Joshua 24, 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua 
and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Now, I want to point this out, and we need to see this. This is one of the few passages that talk about Israel being faithful in such blanket terms. These kinds of statements are few and far between. As as soon as you go on from Joshua into Judges, and of course you know they had been unfaithful previously uh, during Moses' time, and even in Joshua's time. But as soon as you go into Judges, you're going to see the unfaithfulness of Israel. It seems that they are more unfaithful than they are faithful, and that seems probably accurate. And God's people always struggle with faithfulness. That's why this is so notable. It's because Moses was faithful. It's because Joshua was faithful. It's because these elders were faithful that God's people were faithful. And they were faithful for an entire generation after Joshua. Think about that. Sometimes we take a step back and think, what are we building here? You know, we're, as a church, all together, what are we building? We're trying to build a, a gospel-centered, Christ-glorifying and exalting community that is faithful to Christ through the generations. But none of us, not, not me, not you, none of us, not the other pastors, not the deacons, not the directors of certain ministries, not the care group leaders, none of us, not the ministry team leaders, not every servant in the church, none of us can ensure that future generations will be faithful to Christ. But you know what we can do? That will position them well. That will give them the example. That will teach them how to be faithful and position them well. We can be faithful to Christ. It's the best thing we can do. And we need to cling to Christ and be faithful to Him all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Let me ask you. Those who are older among us, are you finishing faithfully? Are you finishing faithfully? I think it's an important question for those who are older. Because as, as, as this life slips away and eternity comes more into focus, if, if our hearts aren't clinging to Christ, there may be a temptation to cling to things on this earth or to, or, or, or to make allowances for sins that should never be allowed. And so rather than pushing forward in Christ and being faithful to Him and clinging to Him and growing to be more like Him and be His disciples and to invest in others all the more, we we allow things to creep in and, and make us ineffective right at the end and derail us. And God forbid and God help us. And so I want to encourage those who are older to press on. You you know you you have to teach us. You have to teach us how to face the oncoming eternity with faith in Christ. Cling to Him. Be faithful to Him for your sake. Be faithful to Him for our sake. We need that. And those who are younger, are you clinging to Christ right now so that you will take you will take faithfulness into the future you'll make sure that you're faithful that your family's faithful that you're saying as for me my house my church we will serve the lord are you doing that today for more information head to our website at crosswaypa.org